if you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Haggai. And I'll give you a minute, because it's probably going to take you a minute to find the book of Haggai. It has the unique idea that it is between the only two books of the Bible with Z, Zephaniah and Zechariah, and it's only two chapters long. How many of you, when it comes to, to getting things accomplished, need to make lists? Otherwise, they don't get... I'm one of those. I see a couple of hands. You don't, I mean, you don't have to raise... Some of you are like, I've got to write that down to... Should I raise my hand? I need to make a list. I'm one of those that needs to make lists. You know, if my wife gives me two things to get at the grocery store, I'll forget one of them if I don't write it down. You know, bread and milk, I'll come home and she'll be like, where's the milk? I'm like, didn't give me a list. It's not, I didn't get it. Some of us need to have lists for everything. We just bought a house, and so there's lots of things that we are, are working on in the house, and we both kind of sat down and are starting to get our list of what needs to be fixed or, or painted, which is pretty much everything, first, and what are the order and all of that. But we have lists, and some of you have done that as well. You make lists for a lot of things. And when it comes to our, our spiritual life, some of us make lists as well. Like, well, you know, the things that we do that we know that God wants us to do. And when we make those types of lists, it may look something like this. Now, I know not all of you can see this, but hey, you know, if you can, great. To-do list. First thing, the will of God. I'm, we're in church we're here on Sunday morning. You're here. I would hope and pray that you would say at the top of the list of things that I need to do is the will of God. But the big question is, am I doing that? What exactly is, in, the, in specific ways, the will of God for me personally in my own life? And what happens if I'm, I'm not? Well, the book of Haggai, it's a short book. It's two chapters. We're only going to be in this book for about a month is a book that really examines this particular scenario. What is the will of God? What should I be doing? Am I doing it? And if not, what do I need to be doing? This book is only, was written over a period of three and a half months. We know that because it's one of the most accurately dated books of the Bible. It's a prophet, it's a, he's a prophet, and he speaks to the people, and he sets off his prophecies with pretty specific dates. This first one, I believe, is August 20th, 520 B.C., and over three and a half months, he gives several prophecies to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, that kind of focus on this question. Are we doing the will of God? Are we doing what God wants us to do? They aren't, by the way. You'll find that out right away. And then how do they fix it? Now, to understand the book of Haggai, you have to understand a little bit of the background, what leads up to what we read here, because otherwise it just kind of, you start going, and what is he talking about? And so to understand a little bit, I'll try not to bore you too much with history, but you need to know a little bit of the background. Haggai, the, the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, they were taken captive around the year 600 B.C. by the Babylonians, a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. If you've ever read the book of Daniel and, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that, Daniel, Ezekiel, they talk a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. The Babylonians come to Jerusalem and they conquer the Jewish people and take them as captives back to Babylon. And when they destroy their, their capital city, they destroy Jerusalem, they do something very, very significant. They take all of the valuable things out of the temple and they burn it. They destroy it. It is gone. They wipe out the temple. And the temple was the centerpiece of the Old Testament 
uh, Jewish way. Uh, the religious, when, when Moses got the Ten Commandments and he, he got the law and he began to explain how God was going to interact with his people, the temple, it was the tabernacle before they built the temple. But it was the centerpiece. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the sacrifices took place. It's where the people were to come to worship. There are very explicit laws that God gave them concerning this temple. And it served for several centuries as the centerpiece for Jewish life. And when Babylon conquered them and destroyed it, it, it kind of, it was the thing that they thought would never happen, but it did. And they were taken captive to Babylon, and for 70 years they lived there. And then Babylon was conquered by the Persians, and there was a king by the name of Cyrus, and Cyrus was unique. When he would conquer somebody, he conquered Babylon, he would allow some of the nations to go back to their homelands and rebuild their religion, rebuild their, their kind of their cities and, and, and build their temples and, and all of that. And so that's what happened. He conquered Babylon, Cyrus did, the Persians, and he allowed people, including the Jews, to go back to their homeland, and a lot of them did. They traveled back to Jerusalem, which was destroyed. There was nothing really left of it, and they had the opportunity to kind of rebuild, and Cyrus even gave them money to do it. And so when they first got back, everything started out great. They reinstituted the festivals that we read about in Gen- or Exodus and Leviticus. They set up an altar and they began to do the sacrifices that they were supposed to do. They even rebuilt the foundation of the temple. They were going to rebuild this temple. And the book of Ezra records what happens when they kind of dedicated the foundation. Those that were older, that remembered the original temple that had been destroyed by the, by the Babylonians, they cried. They were sad because this new foundation, it wasn't going to be nearly as big or as nice as the previous temple. There was probably some joy that they were getting it back, but it wasn't going to be quite what it once was. But they did get started kind of with a bang. They, they started to do what they were supposed to. But then Cyrus, the king of Persia that let them go back, he died. And another guy came on the throne. And some of the people that were around the the Jewish people tried to get them to stop doing the work that they were doing. And they even got some political opposition from this new king to try and prevent them from rebuilding. And there were some other things that happened. But anyway, the Jewish people stopped their work on the temple. It was just the foundation. They just left it there. And for 15 years, it sat there. And you can imagine, you know, for 15 years walking by, seeing this foundation, it's just sitting there. And that's when Haggai shows up. He shows up and he writes, well, he, he's, he's a prophet. God gives him the words that, that he wants him to say. And he's the one that approaches the Jewish people about their lack of obedience, about the fact that the will of God, what God wanted them to do, was not the highest priority of their life. Now, I want you to understand, in the Old Testament, the temple was, was significant. It, it's not, our modern church buildings today are not replacements for the temple. In other words, when we read here in the, the, the first chapter about going and, and they weren't dedicated to this building, it was because it served as the central religious piece in the Old Testament. Our modern church buildings aren't that. For us as New Testament Christians, our question is, is, is Jesus Christ, is, are we doing the priorities that he has for us? In other words, We, as the church body, are are the temple in the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit, he indwells each and every believer. Are we obeying the commands that Christ has given us? As you look at your life, you ask yourself this question, 
the will of God, the will of Christ, what he wants me to be doing with my life, is that my top priority? And if not, what do I need to do? So I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read a little bit of the book of Haggai as we begin the first 11 verses of chapter 1. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land. And the hills, and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast, and on all their labors. Lord, I pray as we look at your word this morning, we examine our, our hearts, we examine the priorities of our life. Lord, that you would bring to mind those things that uh, are not the way they should be, Lord, and, and that you would convict us to change them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So the question, is the will of God, what he would want for each and every one of us, is that the priority of our life? And for the Jewish people, it quite clearly wasn't. And so what happens? What happens in, in the, what happened to them? What happens to us? What happens to a believer when, when what Christ would want us to do, how Christ would want us to live our lives is not the priority and we are doing something different with our life? Well, as we look at this, this passage, the Lord, because he's speaking through the prophet Haggai, just lays it right out there for them. He tells them exactly what's going on and he doesn't, it's not hard to follow. The first point he notices out is that when, when God isn't first, we excuse it away. We excuse it away. Verse 2, the first verse just kind of gives the, the historical background. He says, you know, what year it happened and who he's talking to, and that becomes important as we get towards the end of the book. But in verse 2, he just this is the, the main crux of the whole book. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They just say it's not time yet. And the way this is kind of written in the Hebrew, because of the, the way the word time is mentioned there a couple of times, it almost seems like it's become a slogan. It's something that these people just have rehearsed, and this is how they respond anytime anyone asks about the temple. You remember, the foundation was built. For 15 years, it sat there. Have you ever driven past, you know, something big that somebody was going to build, 
they ran out of money or something happened and just part of it sits there and you just drive by and people begin to ask, what, what in the world? You know, why doesn't this get fixed? You know, kind of like 67, 167. It just sits there forever, never gets, no, I'm just. Well, that probably was what happened for 15 years. People would walk by and be like, why isn't that getting fixed? I mean, kids were growing up. They'd ask that question. And they would say, well, the time has not yet come. And there were probably what they would have thought were good reasons for saying that. They were excuses, but they probably thought they were good reasons. Remember what I told you, that for a while there was some political opposition to it. Uh, the, the king between Cyrus and Darius, Cambyses, he said we didn't want them to do it. But Darius, it says, had been on the throne for over two years at this point. And Darius was much more like Cyrus. He was open to people rebuilding their, their religious uh, uh, temples. But it appears the Jewish people haven't, hadn't even bothered to check into that. Also, as you read through this first half of this first chapter, you realize they didn't have a lot of money, or it appeared that they didn't. You know, God talks about they don't have that stuff. Verse uh, uh, 6, he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. They may have said, we don't have enough money to fix the temple. You know, when we have enough money, then we'll get around to fixing the temple. They may have thought, especially in that regard, they needed to wait until they could build a nice one. This one, the foundation, it wasn't going to be quite as good as the previous temple. And they may be saying, listen, when we have enough money, we have enough time, and, and we're back in power, we're not serving under Persia anymore, then we'll get to the temple. And there probably were other thoughts that they could have had, but they just said, listen, the time isn't quite right to build the temple. And God just blows that up with the first phrase. It's not a reason. It's an excuse. But it's an excuse that we often make too, isn't it? In my time as a pastor, and I'll talk to people, and they'll, you know, they'll come to church, they're members of churches or whatever, they'll come and they'll say, I've been praying, or just as I live my life, I can tell there's things that God wants me to do. There are areas of my life that need to change. There are some priorities that Jesus Christ has for my life that aren't, they aren't my priorities right now. And they could be anything. It could be joining the church. It could be starting to tithe. It could be joining a life group. It could be having a prayer time with my children. It could be, it, fill in the blank. Most every follower of Jesus Christ, as they, they, they live their lives, they become aware of the Holy Spirit impressing upon them some things that where their priorities aren't the priorities that God would have them to have. And they'll tell me that and they'll say, and I'll get around, I'm, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to start tithing when I get a raise. I'll join the church here in the next couple of months. I'll get involved in a life group when, when things slow down at work. I will fill in the blank. There's, there's reasons why. You've you got to understand there's reasons why I haven't got to do it, but I'm going to do it. And what we see here is, is reasons that God's priorities are not first are not reasons. They're excuses. But they're easy to make, aren't they? I mean, I've, I've made those those excuses. And that goes to the point number two, is, is when we, what happens when God isn't first, first we excuse it away, but it also shows we still have time to focus on ourselves. God kind of, you know, sticks the knife in him here. Verse three, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Verse four then, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? 
So he, he first, uh, you know, he says, hey, the time isn't right to build my house, but <laughs> you apparently have enough time to build your own. And not just build houses. He's not just saying, hey, you know, just a place to, to, to get out from underneath the sun and the rain, but paneled houses. In other words, they've had time to kind of spooch them up a little bit. And what he's saying is you, you, you've made these excuses, you've given these reasons that you think are valid as to why you don't get to my priorities, but your priorities, you always seem to have enough time to get to those. And he points out to something that we've all dealt with in life. Delayed obedience is disobedience, isn't it? I mean, I'm a parent now. I've learned to deal with them. Now, I was a kid once, so I get this too. Whenever you, know, you ask them to go do something, yeah, in just a minute which could be 30 or several hundred, you know, just depends on what they're doing at the time. But delayed obedience is disobedience. And it's something that we have become accustomed to when it comes to the things of of God. We even have ways to make it sound real spiritual. I was listening to a sermon by a guy by the name of Odie Bauckham, and he's talking about a phrase that he hears a lot of Christians use. When I have a peace about it. And what he is saying, he's like, People will sit there and say, once I have a peace about something that God has called me to do, then I will do it. And he said, there's, not, there's nothing biblical about that. There's nothing scriptural about that. He was saying, I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about things, but he's, he said his problem with it was is only ever applied to what we would call spiritual things. For example, a number of people in this room are probably going to go out to lunch after we're finished here. Some of you are already starting to think about the food, you know. Pastors should never do this, start talking about food during the sermon, but our service is a little early, so maybe you're not too hungry just yet. But you've probably, some of you are going to go out to lunch. Your wife or your husband or your kids may have even asked, where are we going to go to lunch today? And I doubt, and I could be wrong, I doubt anybody said, well, before we decide to go out to lunch today, I've got to wait till I have a piece about it. <laughs> you know, if, if God gives me a piece about it, Maybe we'll go out to lunch or vacations, you know. We may have, if I got enough money in the bank account, but rarely do we say until I have a piece about it. In fact, when it comes to the stuff that we want, you know, ladies, you want to go get a pair of shoes, guys, you want to go get a fishing rod or whatever, we don't say until I have a piece about it. It's until I have enough money. But it happens when we talk about spiritual things all the time. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about it and you don't do every single thing that comes down the pipe, but when we know what God has called us to do, we're not going to get a peace about it. You know what to do. In fact, I don't even know what that phrase means. Does it mean until you have a level of comfort where you have no worries or concerns? Because if that's the case, we won't do a lot of the stuff. I mean, do you think Jesus, when he was in the garden, sweating blood, said, I will obey you when I have a piece about it? I'm glad he didn't. God points it out. My will, what I want from you, it may be tough, it may be difficult, but putting it off while you get to the things you think are important is just disobedience. It's excuses. The third point that he moves into begins in verse 5. We ignore the effects. God has presented the problem. He's presented the excuses. And then he says something that's important in verse 5. He says this this phrase twice, verse 5 and verse 7, and we shouldn't skip over it. He says, now, therefore, says the Lord, consider your ways. God says through, through Haggai, he says, all right, 
Now just stop for a minute and, and look at your life. Consider how things are going in your lives. And he then describes what's going on. He says you, got, you, you, you plant a lot of stuff, but you don't harvest much. You have food to eat, but you don't seem to get filled up. You have something to drink. You don't ever get filled. He just goes through this list of things. He says you have some stuff, but you never seem to have quite as much as what you think you should get. And really, after verse 7 and 8, he kind of rehashes this, and he talks about it later. And there's two ideas that are, are, are here in these, these verses. The first is just the obvious, literal, you, you don't have enough. There's a drought. You don't have enough food, enough to drink, and all of that. But there's also within this first one especially a sense of you're not satisfied with what you do have. In other words, you've paneled your houses, you've concentrated on yourselves, trying to fulfill your life with all of these things that you're important, while what I want for you gets pushed down on the list, how I want you to live gets pushed down on the list. My temple gets, you know, down on the bottom rung, and yet you're not satisfied by all of the things you've focused your life on. I think this is a, a very timely thing. This is a you know, a 2,500-year-old passage of Scripture, but it's very timely to our day and age. We have more stuff than at any other point in history. Yet often, when I talk to people, they just don't seem satisfied. I read a, a, a little... Has anybody ever heard of the Babylon Bee? Anybody? Okay, I see a few hands. If you've never gone to the Babylon Bee, it's a web page, and it's... Christian news, but it's fake. It's not real, okay? I know we hear a lot about fake news. This one just tells you right out. It's fake. And it's just, but while it's fake and it's not real, the stories kind of make you think and you go, well, they're, they're closer to the truth than we might like to imagine. And there was one. I want to read it to you. It won't take but just a moment, but it just struck me. And this is the title of the passage. This is the title of the story. It says, I'm bored, says a kid with more luxuries than even royalty possessed just 100 years ago. Here's the story. It says, according to sources close to local boy Michael Jacobs, the eight-year-old kid reported he was, quote, bored after school Monday, even though he was surrounded by more luxuries and abundant resources than even kings and queens had just a 100 years ago. Quote, there's nothing to do, he said, his eyes glazing over as he stared at mountains of electronic games and entertainment devices specifically designed to ensure he stayed engaged at all times. Jacobs also reportedly pointed out that there was nothing to watch on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, and YouTube, even though kings and queens of ages past felt lucky to go to a playhouse from time to time and would have been flabbergasted at the sheer number of entertainment options available to him. The boy browsed through the catalogs of various streaming services on one of the family's 18 streaming devices before declaring every single show that catered to his exact demographic was, quote, lame. Sources claim Jacob's parents then suggested he play on one of the hundreds of video games he had accumulated over the years. But the young boy reportedly replied that he would need to acquire a new game if he was to remain entertained for more than a few minutes. Quote, those games were exciting when I first got them, but now they're just boring. Ugh, there's nothing fun around here, he told them, according to witnesses. At publishing time, Jacobs had wandered over to the cupboard and stared miserably at a larger quantity of, and variety of foodstuffs than princes of past centuries had ever dreamed of and declared, quote, there's nothing to eat here. It's not real, but it's closer to the truth than we'd like to imagine. Most of us have multiple television sets. We have nice houses. They're air-conditioned. We have refrigerators full of food. 
We have cars and all sorts of leisure activities. We get two days off a week, most people, so I'm only one. We have a limited number of hours a day that we work. We get to sleep in comfortable beds. Yet there's a lot of folks that sit in churches every Sunday that go, there's just, there's some sort of, there's still a hole, there's still an emptiness. And the book of Haggai kind of shows how that can be. Yet if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, God will not let us, this is a, a wonderful thing that he does, won't let us be satisfied when he's not at the top of the list. When we focus on trying to fulfill every want that we could possibly have, and we get many of them, there's still that emptiness that can only be filled when we're doing what God has called us to do. And so, as, as we start to see this first chapter unfold, when God isn't first, we excuse it away and f- still have time to focus on ourselves. We often are ignoring the fact that when we focus on ourselves, it still doesn't satisfy, and it leads us to the fourth and final point. We overcomplicate the remedy. Look at verse 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There it is again. He said, now look at your life as it is. And he said, look at all of the things that you have that just don't satisfy, all of the ways that you're missing out. And then after, as they're contemplating that, as they're looking at then he says this, think now, I want you to consider something else. Go up to the hills, bring wood, Build the house, build the temple. Why? That I, the Lord of hosts, may take pleasure in it, and I may be glorified. I remember there was a guy once, he went to the doctor, and he was, you know, overweight and out of shape, and he was trying to figure out why he didn't feel so good. And the doctor said, well, because you're overweight and out of shape. Eat better and exercise. You don't need all sorts of medications, all sorts of diagnoses. It's, It's straightforward. This is the problem. This is how you fix it. Often in Christian circles, we can overcomplicate the remedy, which is repent and do what God has called you to do. Repent of the sin. Repent of the ways in which you are not doing what God has called you to do. And then do it. There's a story in the the New Testament that has become quite, it's used quite a bit in our day and age to talk about judging. It's when the Pharisees brought an adulterous woman to Jesus. Do you remember the story? We use it today because Jesus doesn't condemn her in the way the Pharisees wanted him to. They bring this woman caught in adultery, and they say, you know, the law tells us to stone her. What do you say? And Jesus is writing on the ground, and he gives the famous passage, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And, of course, one by one, they drop the stones from the oldest to youngest, and they leave. But what I wanted to focus on is the very last thing when he deals with the woman. A lot of people say this is a story he doesn't judge her. I'm like, yeah, he does. Because what does he say to her? Go and what? Sin no more. He doesn't overcomplicate it and say to her, let's examine why do you get yourself involved in these bad relationships? Why do you choose to find married men? Why do you do all of these other things that maybe she needs to address at some point, but he does say to her, listen, you need to repent and you need to stop disobeying the word of God. Go and sin no more. In Haggai, go up to the hills, get the wood, build the temple that you were supposed to build 15 years ago. I, 
like many people, make excuses. I, I, I pray and I, I spend time in the Word of God and, and all of us have ways that God will show us where some way our spiritual life is out of whack. His priority is not what we, we have. We're not praying with our spouses like we're supposed to. We're not uh, serving in ministry like we're supposed to serve. Whatever it is, and we know it's not right, and we try and overthink it and say, you know what we need to do? Repent and do what God has called us to do. So what I want you to do, I want you to bow your heads this morning. Close up your Bibles, bow your heads, close your eyes. We're going to spend a few moments with the Lord. Musicians are going to come up. We are going to sing a final song here in just a moment. But as we think of the the priorities of, of God in our life, as I've said several times in this message this morning, Each and every person in this room has specific ways, if they're born again, the Holy Spirit of God is indwelling them, that they are convicted of various sins or various areas where he is not, his priorities are not the highest ones on our list. Could be the way we're we're raising our kids, the way we, we spend our money, whether or not we're involved in the way God wants us to be involved in his church, whether there's a ministry we need to be serving in, whatever it is, What I want you to do this morning is to begin to pray that God would quiet your heart so that you can see that. One of the things that we see in this passage, for 15 years the temple sat there and they were too busy about their lives to to pay attention. To put two and two together, the emptiness in their lives, the drought, the, the things that God was putting in their way to say, turn back to me. And in our lives... In 2018, there were so many distractions, so many things in our lives to, not, to keep us from quieting our hearts to say, God, what, what, what needs to change? And so for a few moments here this morning, I want you to begin the process of saying, God, open my eyes to the areas of life that need to change. Lord, this morning, as you hear the prayers of so many in this room whose lives are busy, have so many obligations, so many deadlines, so many worldly things that uh, are are competing for their, their attention, competing for their devotion, competing for their, 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 their way of living each and every day. Lord, I ask that today, tomorrow, that you would give them quiet moments where they can hear from you. They would hear conviction. Lord, they would hear that you are calling them to to different ways of living in different areas of their life. Lord, there are those this morning that don't know you as their Savior and Lord. What they're hearing, Lord, is that they're full of sin. They need a Savior. And Lord, this morning before they leave the here, I pray that they would come, they'd talk to me, they would call out, they'd cry out on, uh, to your, your, your goodness, your salvation. And for Lord, for those that know you, that you would convict them of the areas where they need you as the Lord of their life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.